Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing chapter 5. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. Right, so a short chapter, lots lots to discuss. Um, so let's let's get going. The first point he makes in the first page of the chapter is four-dimensional space, if we try to imagine it to ourselves, will be an infinite repetition of our space, of our infinite three-dimensional sphere, as a line is an infinite repetition of a point. So I think yeah. he's starting he's starting back where he's already covered ground in the past yep. chapters. I, I haven't yes. made any notes for that because we've spoken about this a million times. Yep. So you guys talk yep. about it, I'm not going to. No, well, I don't think we do need to. I think we're just starting from this point where, where he's saying, well, we've already established that a line is an infinite repetition of points. Uh, surface is an in- infinite repetition of lines. So three dimensions is infinite repetition of surfaces. Therefore, four dimensions must be an infinite rep- repetition of three-dimensional sphere. So let's take that as given. Next point he co- talks about is he also repeats. He goes back to the fourth dimension must be sought for in time. And he's, again, I think he's retracing his steps to, well, at least for me, it feels like that. He's basically saying that a four-dimensional body is the tracing of a three-dimensional body in a direction not confined within it, and he's calling that direction time. I think we covered this in the last couple of chapters, unless anyone else has something more to to add. I think he's covered it enough to almost call it self-evident from what he's the way he's discussed it before mm. in the book. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So then he gets on to this concept of a four-dimensional body. And in this he's talking about, well, I think he's talking about the, like a human body, but a four-dimensional human body. And he talks about the four-dimensional body being infinite number three-dimensional ones. So our three-dimensional human body has a fourth dimensional equivalent and what we see well this is what I think he's saying so this is where I think we yeah we'll get some discussion happening what I think he's saying is that we keep on seeing intersections of that of our four-dimensional body as our three-dimensional body so we start young we get older we become really old and then we die but that's sort of just our four-dimensional body intersecting the three-dimensional plane and showing an aspect of the four-dimensional body in the three-dimensional plane. That's what I got from what he was saying. But I'm going to hand it over to you guys to tell me if I'm wrong. Well, the cinema film analogy was great. Oh, go on, go on. Yeah, I was going to say, when he says, therefore we are in error in thinking of the three-dimensional body is in itself something real. It is a projection of the fourth-dimensional body, projection of the image of it on our plane. I think that's a really neat way of, of summing up his concept. It's it's a, a part, not a not an not a full. It's just the, the the section of it in three dimensions of something that sits in fourth. And of course, that also raises the question of whether or not a fourth dimension is, is the section of something that sits in the fifth. You know, and so it could go up. But ne- yeah, so I don't know where where the where it stops at the other end, but well, he says I, I think, he says it doesn't. He says it's infinite. He actually says that it's infinite. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. At one point, yeah. Which which coincides coincides with Hindu philosophy, which says there are infinite number of spheres. And guess what? When we are at one point um, projected from this fourth dimension, it has to exist. It has to actually include us in every direction. So we have to have an infinite um, projection in every di- in an infinite number of directions. In other words, we have to be an infinite sphere, which is great. Anyway, carry on. Sorry. 
<laughs> so you you were saying, Pete, that, uh, and I think you, it's got a good point there. The um, the cinematographic film analogy was is is pretty good to explain. Well, it is it, it is for the, describing what he says. I mean, it's quite clear that, uh, and this is actually a, a laid down fact. This is one we can all agree on in the third dimension. Even people who are not interested in this, that. Every cell and every atom is replaced. Over seven years, the physical body has changed completely. There's not a single shred of atom that's the same as it was seven years ago. That is a fact. We knew it. Uh, and yet we consider ourselves to be the same person. <laughs> and that, uh, uh, what we are considering to be the same person is this linga sharia, well, sharira. And it's the, the form. We, he's, he's back to describing platonic forms. That persists. Let's have a look at the Linga Sharira because I think that's that's one of his big points that he's talking about here. Is is saying that uh, the Linga Sharira is is a constant, whereas uh, when we look at time and motion, we've got change, um, and that's the body. But the Linga Sharira is constant. Do you think that that is what we sense as our consciousness? Well, he doesn't say I, that. I believe it is. Doesn't say it here, does it? No, and I wonder if it's what I don't know. The Christian philosophy and Peter, you're studied these things more than I have, uh, would view that as being the soul, uh, our consciousness, the soul, or that intangible part that is us. And uh, and what I think is really interesting about this Lingashrira is that he discusses this here, but by the end of the chapter, the very thing he's, that is. You know, he says, is that we want to look for the fourth dimension. We must look for what is measurable, what is not measurable, but what is constant. And um, and I think that's why we were discussing earlier on. He brings in Newton earlier on with fluxes and um, and the movements, just simply to say that that's measuring things that that's measuring things that are not constant. So anything that is changing would be changing in time and changing in space, whereas Something like the Linga Sharira is not changing. It doesn't seem to change ever. So I wonder well, from that whether he's... He says it... Hang on, he says it does, Sue. I've got, I've got it underlined here. The Linga Sharira is the form, the image. It changes what remains the same. And is that the least... concept of everything in all directions, in all infinite, uh, infinite ways at the same time? So it's everything but the same? I don't know. Is that... <laughs> well, I wonder I mean, if that's can... not... It changes on the third, in the third dimension. It seems to change, but it, if it remains the no, same... No, no, no he's, it's, this is... Well, if, if that's the case, then the, either the translation or his writing is in error. It's quite specific. The linga sharira is the form, the image. It changes but remains the same. Now, that's not ambiguous language. <laughs> but it is that language there, uh, I mean, that, that one line, um, not ambiguous. But except it doesn't, it's not really self-explanatory then either, is it? Changes but remains the same. What is he saying? Yeah, I know. I know, exactly. I swear, that's, that's, that's the point. I, I don't find this easy at all. And I think he skips over something that he said there and doesn't explain it well at all. Anyway, that's my opinion of it. I, I don't think he does a good job of it, of explaining it. And if you can explain that, um, I'd be very grateful. I think I think what he's saying, because if you read the bits above it, he said, um, as, as you said before, after one second, the body is not all, already absolutely the same as it was the you know, previous mm -hmm. second. And, you know, with seven years, it's quite different. He said, but despite this, something always persists from birth to death. Changing persisting doesn't mean a little. Yeah, I'm gone. I was going to say, uh, persisting doesn't mean staying the same, though. No, it doesn't. It says um, changing its aspect a little, but remaining the same. What does he mean by a little? What does he mean by a little? I mean that that this is this is something that it it feels to me that he is barely grasping, and I, I wouldn't have written about it at all or written about it at more length. Because it's it's not clear at all. It could be a translation thing, but the people who've done the translation are not stupid either. They haven't given it to some school kid. Yeah, that's not true. Sure. Well, I think, yeah, I mean, what can you say? I mean, the Linga Sharira 
is something that's um, in, in Hindu philosophy, and I must confess I know nothing about it. Okay, well, it's just a name, and it rep uh, and its nearest representation in Western philosophy is Plato's Forms, Plato in the Cave. If you read The Republic, you'll find it in there, that section. It's a very famous section about forms and shadows. And that's what the Linga Sharira is. It's just an Eastern philosophy. Now, Bl Blavatsky, who he actually quotes in my version of this book here, um, because he says he's got the term from the secret doctrine, doctrine by Helena Blavatsky. She was obsessed with Eastern philosophy, so yes, she would have put it in in those terms. She has she has discussed it in those terms, but in the West, we've always discussed it in the same way um, that Plato does, using Platonic forms. It's exactly the same thing. It's equally indecipherable, but the form is the essence of the the object in the third dimension. But the form remains the same in, in Plato. This is this is interesting. Now, I, I I don't want to waste a lot of time over over one thing. If people you know are quite happy with this explanation of it, but I'm going to say that there are contradictions in my my version of this book that that do not get explained in this chapter. Hmm, it I'll agree with you. Really, it seems to be really awkwardly glossed over. Yes, one little on. sentence. Yeah. Because yeah. very often, Spensky goes. Well, like he says something, and, the, and then he goes, in other words, or I.E., and does it yeah. an explanation in another way. But not, not this one. He just, you know, rams it right over the top of it and, and, and moves on. And I think the only thing I, can, I kind of got from it was that I'm thinking he's talking about this fourth-dimensional body and that we are seeing aspects of it in the three dimensions and it's in some way it could be changing could be moving but it's always there as opposed to when he says it's persistent i think he's saying it's always there and therefore it's changing but it's not um staying the same but it's it's not going anywhere it's always there i mean maybe that's the only thing i can say for it <laughs> do you know Maybe part of this is why <laughs> This is why it is such a great value to sit down and discuss this book because there are one lines here that just hurt you, hurt my brain. I just don't know, and they don't. They they'll open open a, a a concept, but never really go take it through. Or some of them. I mean, another one of them that does it for me in this same chapter is says, on, on the the material atom is the entrance of the fourth dimension into three dimensional space. Yeah, he talks I, I quite a bit like about this. Too. Yeah, yeah, and I think to myself, I well, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying, but is he saying that our, it's, it's when consciousness focuses from a higher plane down to the three-dimensional plane that we bring in an atom, or is it what exactly? I, I don't really he's have a concept talked here. About, he's talked about this atom business quite a lot up to now, and, and I'm still in the dark with it. Yep. <laughs> I, I, I have a yep. theory of this that... He started this book in this way. Now, having read the whole thing uh, more than once in my life, um, mind you, not many times, only a couple, but having read it, I know full well where he wants to go. And he feels like he's setting the scene. I think by chapter five, he got fed up with this and wish he hadn't started here. I think he wishes he'd started from somewhere else. <laughs> well, because we know by the time he's got to chapter seven, he's well and truly done with analogies. And it's yeah, just I know. Vocal about that's, it. that's off he goes exactly, again. Exactly so, yeah. He says, oh, you know, to hell with it. I, I can't, I'm over that. And let's get on to the real stuff. <laughs> but in the process, we're all sitting here saying, I can grasp this concept, but I'm lost on this one. And I sort of get this thing, but I don't really understand that. And, I know. You know, he's I, I, look, got us in a I think that if you wanted to to go down this road uh, in more detail, then this isn't the book to do it. And I think you're better off reading um, Locke, Barclay, Hume, and, and people like that. Um, he's only using this sort of discussion to set the scene. And we've had, this is our, how many, um, is this session number seven? Because we did two on chapter four. No, so this yeah, will be so session number six, won't it? Well, this is session number six. Session number six. You know, uh, 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 we're, we're going on and, and round in circles and sometimes we know better off than we were before. Sometimes we're a lot better off than we were before. You know, we could we could have done a whole series on just these five chapters. 
Absolutely. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing. Uh, <laughs> yes, and, and look out. It, 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 it's only got more rollicking, interesting stuff that could be totally confusing afterwards as well. Anyway, <laughs> where, where are we going to go so, from here then? Because we've got stuck let's, on one, one line. <laughs> let's, let's go back to... Yeah. <laughs> Let's forget the Lingusharira for the moment because I think we've all kind of got to a point where we know that I think in some ways it's our essence. It's, it's, can I, can I ask can... one thing, though, before we just do shift mm. off that page? I, it, he says, and I've underlined this bit, he said, we can think and imagine form without matter, but we can't imagine matter without form, which is mm. a really interesting point. So if we take um, the idea of the form, the Lingusharira, this is... See, when he uses the term form, this is why I say he is definitely relating to the platonic form here for people that have, have read that and understand it. He's relate, to me, he's relating the linga sharira to the platonic form. Uh, it's easier for people in the West to understand that. But nevertheless, um, this idea that we can imagine an object without the object actually being there, this is how we invent things. This is, this is, this is how invention works. Somebody has an idea and imagines it or dreams it in the case of Einstein and Tesla, and then they, they make it a, a 3D reality. We can imagine things like that, but what we can't do is um, imagine this, this idea of form Well, I think that's exactly matter. it. It's an idea. It hasn't got form, has it? But yeah, well, I, I'm not sure that, that I understand what he's what he's saying here because we can think and imagine form without matter, which we we can do, but we can't even think of matter without form. He's saying that it's the form of something that we imagine, even if we've never seen that object before, that is suggesting itself somehow to our consciousness from the fourth dimension. I wondered, Peter, when I read that, whether the form he was talking about would be something like uh, intangible, like Alice is saying, like a thought or or consciousness or soul or something of that description, okay. something that doesn't actually have matter ever really associated with it. So well, the actual sentence, yeah, go on, sorry. So I, I don't know. Well, I mean, we do think about, so, so that's, just, that's just two interpretations on the one line. Mm. I mean, previous line was... Under the category of matter, as already stated, the cause of a lengthy series of mixed sensations is predicated, but matter without form is not comprehensible to us. In other words, we can't imagine anything if the form of it doesn't exist somewhere in the fourth or beyond dimension. It has to suggest itself to us from somewhere or we can't even imagine it. Mm, but matter, matter, so, matter being... three-dimensional. Mm. Objects in the three di third dimension or, be or below. But he says, but but we can think of form without matter. Without, so we can imagine. Yeah, because that's how we invent things. But what I'm saying is, where does that come from? Um, are, are we are we putting ourselves on so high a pedestal to say that we are the ultimate creator? Because to create a form is being God. To create the essence of something when that thing doesn't already exist is you pulling it out of somewhere that we have no example of and, and putting it into your consciousness so that you can then, if you wish, create a 3D representation of it. Where does it come from? Well, it's sort of like that concept that you can't create something out of nothing. There has to be something there because nothing only pro yeah, the f provides but nothing. Where, but where does the form come from? I know that later on he's going to give us some tools and some discussion that we can actually work upon from that. But uh, here, he's casually mentioned it and moved on. Anyway, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to move on. I just wanted to, to bring these things, especially to people who are listening that haven't read the book, that there are questions like this that need to be answered if, you, if you're going through it. Or you could do what I do and, and look at that and say, that's ambiguous with no explanation, I'm moving on. That's what I do. <laughs> that's just, that, that's, I don't expect I to get every single point. And I, I, as long as I get a vibe... I, hang on, I, I do expect to get every point, and this is why I argue the toss when we come to points like that that are not explained, uh, and I mean, it's not that they're not explained well. Those are not even explained at all here. So 
you know, I, I'm, I'm questioning. That's why I say I think this he's come to a point here where he started from a place and he, he wishes he hadn't. And he wishes because he's he's now starting more and more to skip over things because he wants to get to what he's really interested in. And I know that that's the case because it suddenly becomes so wonderful and beautiful to read in a couple of chapters time. Anyway, my that's my opinion on that one. Yep. You know, in some ways, and Peter, I, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on this analysis. I think at the um, at the end, the very end of this chapter, and I know I'm skipping forward, but um, he talks about you know the, the to me he says, look, you know, we can all the things that come on a third dimension are changing. So this is why we've you know we've got so many things. Whereas, and if we wanted to try and figure out the you know they're variable, but if we want to try and find something that's not of our dimension, if we want to try and find this fourth dimension, we let us search for the constant. In other words, and look for something that we don't normally see. And I think that's what he's building all these things around, even though there are unexplained points in, in what he's saying. To me, the essence of where he's, he's saying, look, you know, let's you know, these other things will point to the fact that there is another dimension, there's a fourth dimension and there may be higher dimensions, but um, we're never going to find it by looking for form, for matter, for atoms, for the things that we can measure. It's only ever going to come out when we, look, when we open our mind to something else. And now, Sue, that to me is perfect. And I wish you'd written this first five chapters because that would have been it, that one paragraph. That would do. <laughs> and then we can move on. Sure. Well, thank you, Vic. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I, I really, I, I'm not being facetious, really. It's just that, first of all, these, these opening chapters are better served, like I say, by reading the empirical writers, Locke, Barclay and Hume, and one or two others, but those three, particularly the, the metaphysicists, the empiricists, read those, does a better job than this. And I think that this is where he's getting on to, and I think we could have moved on to, say, chapter seven. Uh, by giving an introduction in one or two pages. Because he, he, I really get the feeling, and it's only a feeling that I get, which is intangible, I know, it's a, it's a fourth dimensional or fifth dimensional thing, but I'm getting the feeling that he's fed up of it as well, and he wants to move on. Because the opening chapters, he had a lot more detail than, than this one. He would go into things in more detail, and now he's starting to skip over things. He's like, oh my God, I, I'm dying to get to chapter seven. I really want to go well, there. <laughs> The fact that the chapter is only five pages long kind yeah. of supports that, doesn't it? <laughs> and we're and we're twenty four minutes in. <laughs> we're still well. I think I think uh, I mean I'm going to make one point here, and I'm going to move on. Yeah, go on after then. that. Go on. I'm going to say he talks about Newton and his fluxions and fluence, and I think he just wanted to put Newton's name in the book. I don't <laughs> think it has anything to do with. Anything. It, it's kind so, of interesting, but I, yeah, you're right. I, I looked at that. And I said, I'm not underlining any of this. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, it's kind of name dropping in the in the early turn of the 1900s, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> we'll just drop some names. He says, if variability is an indication of the three dimensional world, in that line, I think he says that's what he's trying. That's why he brings in Newton. Newton has all the laws of physics that we work on and we measure and we you know, have all our forces and, you know, do, despite what we're going to call it, you know, fluxions and whatever. Newton. He doesn't need Newton to tell me that things are in motion. We all know we Same start here. young, we die old. And, I don't and need Newton. Newton's not, not going to give me any, any street cred from that. That's and here's the really true horror. Here's the really true horror. He was writing this at the time when the indescribably um, complex general and special theories of relativity were just taking the world well, that particular world, by storm. And Newton, at this point, it's like, you're going to have to revisit Newton and you're going to have to revisit him with a very solid mindset <laughs> to, to try to... In fact, we're sitting here now, a 100 years on from the publication of Tertium Organum. They still are not managing to create a unified theory of physics that unifies... When people talk about the unified theory, that's what they're talking about, quantum with Newtonian mechanics. That's what they're still not managing to put together. I wouldn't have put it in. In the, 19, in the early 19th century, uh, I wouldn't have written about Newton at that point because things were changing at, right there, right before his very eyes. Yep. He'd already yep, decided he was name-dropping. 
He should have dropped Einstein. Einstein now is a far more famous yeah. name even than Newton. But <laughs> Who'd have known? Who'd have known? <laughs> well, nobody would at that point. I think you've raised the most interesting of concepts here too, is, and that is that we still cannot get, with all the brilliant minds and with yeah. all of our <laughs> sharing of knowledge that we can do these days, we still can't get big physics and little physics to come together. And therefore, yeah. <laughs> it says we are missing something. And we I are, think that's, and that's, and that's the fourth dimension and it, in the and whole process. Isn't, it a, when you get, isn't it a bastard when you get to the end of the jigsaw and you're missing a piece? <laughs> yeah, because yeah, that's exactly what it is. And again, Stu, yep. you, you've summed it up. You've summed up chapters one to five in one brilliant sentence. <laughs> well, so well cool. thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Sue, for rewriting all of that and saving us probably many hours. Um, well, I'm going to get on to now his, yeah, his next name, name dropping. He he loves Hinton. He loves him. And he loves his oh. book, A New Era of Thought. So he does. He, does. he just loves him. And, uh, you know, here we go. He's, but but I, I think the next bit was a little bit interesting. I, and, and I know Sue I like, is your I like, favorite I like this. Bit. Are you... Is this the, the folding of the paper part? Yes, oh, yes, love this it. is the folding of the paper part. I love that part. Yeah, I do. Yes. I like yep. All right. So shall I just, yes. I'll just preface it. Yeah, and you, you guys jump can in. Go for gold. Jump in. Okay. So the analogy of the paper is that if you have a uh, sheet of paper and you write, uh, say, St. Petersburg in red ink on one corner and uh, I might say Moscow on the other in red ink and you fold them over you will get uh, the ink not dry, it'll imprint the St. Petersburg onto the Moscow and then you fold them back. And his point is, if you are just living on a two-dimension, just looking at a two-dimensional plane, you'll go, how did that happen? How did one corner reach the other corner? But if you are looking outside of the plane, something outside of the plane, and that's motion outside of the plane in the three dimensions, where that folding is going out into the third dimension, that's where you get the explanation. So it's uh, it's it's talking about things that look like it, it's our limiting. If we look in the three dimension and we think, well, how did that happen? It's because so we're, we're trying to explain it three dimensionally. Yeah. So what you're looking there at is concepts that have come to us in, I'm going to say science fiction, though I know better, uh, as teleportation, because how else would you explain this? And his other example on that piece of paper, 1912 in one corner and 1918 in the other, and you fold those together and it's like, whoa, we're, al we're allowing ourselves to see the past and the future from a certain standpoint. Um, they, imprint each they imprint on each other, which is possibly why people say that the, the future is predicated on the past, but only in one direction, whereas we have multiple directions. I'm, oh God, we're going back to where we were in chapters one and two. <laughs> but but it, it's, it really is interesting, you know, this idea of time travel is then predicated by this little model. Absolutely. It makes sense. It, it makes, makes sense. You know, and uh, it's a science fiction concept. But what he's saying here is what if science fiction is reality? That's well, people in what this real is. scientists and mathematicians are working on this very idea with the idea of making it a 3D reality by using what we are going to call the fourth dimension and bringing that into the science. They're working on this now and have been for a long time to, to make that happen. And we don't know what's happening in secret labs in other places because we never get told secret work. You can imagine that the budget for this will be military because it's going to take unlimited amounts of money. But they are working on it. They are they are working on it. The ones that we do know are working on it. Teleportation comes up. They've teleported atoms. That they they know that they've done it. We've had we've had reports of it, lab reports. What we want to do is teleport other things, and then we're going to have the the problems of science fiction. Oh, but does your consciousness go with you when you teleport the physics? Oh, that's another story. But it, all of this is kind of explained by this folding of the piece of paper, isn't it? This idea that Absolutely. in the fourth dimension, in, in a dimension beyond the one that we observe, 
these things can come together. Can I ask a question of you here? I'd like your opinion, guys. Memories, then, that we have are fourth-dimensional things. These are the thoughts and so on. But we know that memories are imprecise. Two people who have the same experience will tell a different story, even if only slightly. Are we seeing, are we, are we actually pulling back one of the infinite versions of the past, of which there are an infinite version, remember, that we talked about infinity. When we, try, when we uh, pull, pull into our, our conscious mind a memory of the past, do we always get the, the exact one that we th thought we'd experienced, or do we get one that's slightly adjacent to it, so it's slightly different? Which is why I think we that's would have... an interesting thing, because say you have something happen, and that's the memory you're going to pull up. But since that's yeah. happened, other things have happened. So has yeah. the things that have happened since that skewed the concept of what you thought you saw? Like you might have, you might have expanded uh, your understanding of something, and then you then recollect what you saw based throwing that overlay of the new understanding on it. Whereas How about when this? It happened at the time it happened. You may have projected unconsciously in your own consciousness the likely probable future outcome from what you were seeing happening right then and that's what you bring back as a memory whereas what actually happened was slightly different so your memory of it is a is not the memory that you thought you were going to have it's interesting though well i'm not i don't i'm taking this off the chapter it was just a, a question i don't want us to go into too much about it but it is it does throw open everything that he's described here now throws open all kinds of I'm going to call it science fiction, but I, I know that this is serious stuff that people are investigating. But it throws open all of these possibilities. Are you asking then if he, when he talks about 19, you know, uh, 1914 rubbing off into 1918, are you saying, do, do, is it possible that you're standing in 1914, you've rubbed off into that particular plane, some, you've travelled in and out of it and brought something back? Or you've well, gone on to something else. That, a, yeah. You know, I mean, what, what they're saying is, is yeah, I was thinking that we went off. Well, I, yeah, I think we. Are we meandering, meandering through different that, planes? Yeah, that's what and, I. And, that's what I get the feeling. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thought, isn't it? And then we wander back into this yeah. particular one. Yeah. And um, and you know, and I mean, today the three of us are here together, but then mm -hmm. you know we're off having our own little experience. And uh, experiences in other things in life, and you come back in together again. So you're intersecting back in again at different spots yeah. in different ways. And I've often thought it's very interesting to call something our life. We call it a universe, which is one song. And is that what we're? Is that a thought that this is our particular song that we sing, and our universe is for us is very different. Yeah. One song for every single person because we are wandering in and out of this fourth dimension and bringing it back into the third and then just creating an experience. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, that, that makes a lot more sense to me. And, you know, and I think we should also bear in mind that we don't exist outside of the fourth dimension. We are, we are looking at, at life or experience trapped in a third dimension at the moment for whatever reason. You know, we're looking at it from that perspective, I should say, not trapped, but we're looking at it from that perspective, which doesn't allow us to readily measure or see the fourth dimension, but we do have a fourth dimensional aspect. As, as going back to the chapter, this is what he says, we can't imagine matter without the, the immeasurable form, the linga sharira, that goes behind it. So we, as material beings, have to have a fourth dimensional aspect that maybe does this traveling for us and can actually um, touch every point in space and every point in time simultaneously. And we just get little impressions of it that our consciousness focuses on through the narrow slit or the one image in a roll of film. At any and, and is that where he anyway. says we bring into play the atoms? Who knows? Yeah, through that focus well, of consciousness. That, that, Another story yeah, again. I've digressed. I was going to say that's still making my that's still making my head spin a bit, and I can't wait for us to get onto that. So. Yes, that scratches the inside of my head. I'll tell you that. I think this is what <laughs> anyway, he says were, about that. We're, we're on about <laughs> Hinton. And, uh, and yes, you, we were about. Were Hinton. you going to mention about the glove? Because I like the yeah. 
I've got some questions on the thing first. Uh, you know, the triangles that he mentions before the glove. Okay, go, go. Well, shall we talk about the triangles? We better talk. Yeah, about you talk. You talk about that. You, you set the yeah. scene, please. Okay, so what he's saying is, if you had two right angle triangles, so that they were uh, fa- facing away from each other, so that the um, the right, the the tall part is. Um, and the, and the uh, angle is to the left, and the other one is the tall part, and the angle is to the right. Does that make sense? Well, he's saying if you so- separate a rectangle, and if you did that, if you put a diagonal line across the re- a rectangle, you've got the two triangles, which are f- look as though they're yes. pa- pointing away from each other. That's, that's, yes. what so that's what he's saying. That's what he says. So he says that we've put the... So that they're uh, a mirror image of each other. Yeah. And you can't make them the same if you keep them on the, on a flat surface. So you can move them around a flat surface, you can turn them upside down, you can uh, move them sideways, you can do lots of things on the one surface, but they will never be uh, one laying exactly on top of the other unless you move the one triangle out of the plane and flip it over on top of the other. So he's saying that in order to get those two triangles to be uh, exactly the same, you need to flip them out of the plane of two dimensions into the plane of three dimensions. And um, that's his point. Okay. Then he does talk about rotation on the um, two-dimensional plane. And he seems to think that what you've done on the third dimension can't be done in the second dimension by just rotating one of the triangles. I would suggest that you could. So I'm, I, I've put a question mark here because I don't understand it. If, if, I wrote, if, I, if I've got a square and I put a, a diagonal line from one, one corner to, the other, to its opposite diagonal, and then I rotated on a plane the triangle to the right, it will eventually cover the one on the left it would it, w- it would be exactly similar you're, you're saying by the time it goes through 180 degrees yeah it's that's now right. that's exactly lined up it's yeah that's exactly what i'm 180 saying 180 degrees so, lines it up yeah it's exactly the same size you know the, the the lines are the same the angles are the same i can't understand um why rotating it in in two-dimensional space is different than flipping it in three-dimensional space. They both have the same end result, to me. What am I missing, guys? I'm just trying to do a bit of paper. I thought if you rotated it, it's it's not the same. If you've got uh, two... He's, he's saying that they're mirror image of each other, so if you rotate one around... The, recta- yeah, the right angle will eventually match up with the right angle of the other one that's not rotating. They will actually cover each other perfectly. Yes, but it'll be a square because the base of the one you're rotating... Uh, 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 uh. It won't. Let me just get a bit of paper here. Remember our listeners can't see, can't hit, uh, see you doing this. Of course they can't, but they can hear... Folding they can hear you scribbling around with paper. Yeah, but you could tell them anything had happened. Okay, so here we are. This is what we're looking at, where we've got yeah. mirror image. So we move that yeah. around, and that does not... Yeah, but eventually, not... eventually yeah. you will, though, won't you? They, they, are, no. they are exactly similar. But it doesn't cover it exactly. It comes oh, okay. down to... It comes down to on top, but it doesn't cover it exactly. Only oh, okay. Yep, only by flipping it. So yeah. So what I've done here for those who are at home, I've just got two triangles <laughs> and I just <laughs> folded some pieces of paper. <laughs> and then if I flip it, if I flip it, I will get that exact yeah. match. I see what I see. Yeah, I see. I see it now. I see you demonstrating it. That's, but if I that's rotate it, it brilliantly. I don't. So, don't, you don't at all. I, I, it looks as though you have there. It, there, where you're holding it now, that looks as though you have. Oh, no, okay. No. So it hasn't. Yep. Yeah. Okay, I get it. it I couldn't see the bottom bit. It was just the top I saw. That's brilliant. Well done. That's, that's explained it. For everybody listening, um, 
We are going to do a parallel series on origami for beginners, radio only. That's going to be fun. <laughs> and if you thought this was bending your brain, wait till you yeah. get a hold of that. <laughs> origami on the radio was always going to be successful. That's cruel. That's absolutely cruel. <laughs> so, so here is let me let me quote what he, what he says about this for Hinton. Yeah, What's the point? Okay, Hinton in his book A New Era of Thought examines these differences attentively. So the differences he's talking about, the properties of four-dimensional space will become clearer to us if we compare in detail three-dimensional space and the surface and discover the differences existing between them. So what he's saying is let's use what we know about three-dimensional space and use analogy to... Uh, extrapolate into four-dimensional space so this is what he's saying about the the triangles he's saying let's let's in three-dimensional space let's look at a plane because that's the the uh level lower than three the, the two-dimensional plane and let's have a look at triangles and let's see how we can uh, move these triangles so that they one lays on top of the other and he's saying the only way we can lay one on top of the other is to move it out of the two-dimensional plane into the three-dimensional plane to come equally on top you can't do it in the two-dimensional plane so then he's he's saying well okay if that's the case then if we have three-dimensional space and we want to uh, do something similar say take our hand and make one hand the same as the other um, in some manner. Imagine a glove because that would be less painful. <laughs> so, to get, so if we wanted to do that, if we wanted to make one hand exactly fit onto the other, um, we'd have to again do in two, from two-dimensional to three-dimensional, but say we wanted to make turn the hand inside out, as we would a glove. If we had a glove, we would turn the glove inside out and that would lay over the first glove exactly. So the thumb would be in the same spot, all the fingers would be in the same spot. So and it would now be uh, explaining this very direction. badly. Yes, I'm explaining this very badly. But, but what he's saying is, let's imagine if we've got three to four dimensions. So we have a glove, uh, we have, um, we want to make the, the thumbs and the fingers all match each other. We could do that by turning the glove inside out. So if we thought about our hand and in the fourth dimension turned our hand inside out, then we would have to go out of the three-dimensional plane into a fourth-dimensional plane to do that operation, to come back and have the hands exactly lay one on the other. So he's using analogy. Um, he's using analogy of the two to the three dimension and then extrapolating the three to the four dimension. Over to you guys. Well, he's only describing that as Hinton, anyway, is symmetrical similarity. And but I think it's a little bit of a furphy thrown in in some ways, because yeah, he, I mean, it's it's an interesting intellectual exercise, but really, yeah. I mean, he's done it as the pre uh, the preamble to the concept of the uh, the sheet of paper and Madras on one spot and St Peter's on the other, and eighteen yeah. twelve and nineteen twelve. And I think that, that that and down the bottom really explains it just so much better and takes him where so he needs to I. be, whereas the first one just seems to just confuse us all. So, you know, <laughs> do you think, I think we can just go to the bottom perhaps, of the page. <laughs> do you think perhaps he's name-dropping again? <laughs> he, wanted, he wanted to get Hinton in. He, he really did want to get Hinton in, didn't he? He loves yeah. to be backed up by others. He loves to be able to bring in other people's work and say, "Look, this is what they say. They're respected." Hang therefore, on. are we are we saying here that we're well? For me, I'm getting up at silly o'clock in the morning to discuss somebody's book where the person who wrote it was so insecure of his own ideas that, <laughs> that he had no, to back up. No, I don't think at all. I think I think what he's doing is he is. He's backing himself. Uh, he's yeah. he's put a lot of concepts together from different places, and he's backing himself with uh, literature from elsewhere. But, just like but I think you, Sue is correct here because I think that the example of the folded piece of paper does a splendid job. I mean, 
that really sparks the imagination. You can see it. You can actually get the meaning from it. You can apply it to your real world and go, wow, you know, you can you can have this idea of what that could mean in your reality. It's it's a fabulous example. And then the idea of turning your hand inside out, not because remember, Hinton doesn't just go on about the Yeah, I was just going to say, Hinton actually (laughs) says, well, supposing you turn your actual hand inside out, if such an operation were possible. Well, it's not possible, Hinton, and, and it, it is a bit sickening. And so we're not going to do it. <laughs> so, so all right, I think we've covered, we've covered that he's, he's reiterated his very good point with the uh, piece of paper. He should have stopped there. Yeah. He wanted to bring Hinton in. He's, he's put, but you know what I think also? I think yeah. also he loves to put the geometric thing in. His, his theme all the way through this is this geometry. And well, so you know that we're going to start talking about Euclidean and non-Euclidean yes, geometry yes. at some point. So carry on. Anyway, I just thought I'd excite the people with that. He's a mathematician, a of course, isn't he? And, he is, uh, absolutely, yeah. That's but, right. But going so, just you know, quickly back to the other concept of people he talks about, I don't know, but I just imagine that uh, there are groups of intellectuals in his era, we're not in the era of the era of the internet, we're not really so much, we're in the era the phone comes in, but, you know, we're back in 1912, uh, conversation is done by written letters and by yeah. groups meeting together and like-minded people coming together. So he's been part of an intellectual hierarchy. And reading been books. Reading books and he is, and so the the concepts that, you know, it's so easy that, we're in three different parts of the world and we're together today to having this discussion, which is as easy as. But they had to physically go there. So uh, the groups, the people he talks about, are, yeah, I mean, I think that does become an important part of, of your background and, uh, and where well, your I'm, I'm, thought I'm processes to, have come from. I mean, I agree with you there, but you've taken all the fun out of it. I mean, I like having a go at him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a little well, bit more than that, that, I have to tell you. If it was in this day and age, though. we'd be going in Hinton's blog, A New Era of Thought. So, right, I'm going to move on because we are yeah, fast good. approaching. We're so, Oh, we are. Yeah, well, we've right. got 10 minutes yeah. left. We've got 10 yeah. minutes. So, but anyway, so he gets to this next point. He says, for a near approach to the problem of higher dimensions and of higher space, it is necessary, first of all, to understand the constitution and properties of higher dimensional region in comparison with the regions of three-dimensional space. So what is taught, what his next point is, he says, perhaps the first necessity is the direct perception of everything in the outside world which does not fit into the frame of three dimensions, which exists independently of the categories of time and space. Everything that for this reason we are, we are accustomed to consider as non-existent. If variability is an indication of the three-dimensional world, then let us search for a constant and thereby approach to an understanding of the fourth-dimensional world. So he he moves straight from this moving bits of paper and folding them outside of one dimension into another to to then talking about that perhaps the fourth dimension isn't something moving, it's something stationary, and we are only perceiving it as moving because of our our perception of it. Okay, yeah. And that concept, we are the equivalent of time, moving. In other words... Rather than, it's, it's the reverse, isn't it? Rather than things moving in time, we are moving in time. And it's not expressed exactly clearly, but the fourth dimension is the constant. Then we have to be, we're looking for the things that are standing absolutely still. In, and then they're independent of time, independent of motion, independent of fluxes and Newtons and all the other things. Oh, That's you're what just name dropping now. <laughs> I am name dropping, Alice. No, not at all. But I'm just going back in the chapter. So I think that's what he's saying. That this is what this is what we've got to go and see, look for. We know that there are some things that are are constant, but we never seem to focus on them. If you look at the ocean from one of those cliffside telescopes, I don't know if you've seen those. You put a yeah. coin in the slot and you look through the telescope. They're on a they're on a swivel. 
on the on the post so that you can actually swivel around, you can look to the left, you can look to the right. We're doing that. The ocean and the horizon is a constant in that in that instance. But we're shifting our focus of attention when we swing the, the telescope around to the left. We're we're shifting our focus of attention. And so we're looking at the const what is a constant and it seems to be moving. As you move the telescope, the horizon seems to move. What you're looking at through the telescope seems to be in motion. It does have that appearance. And whereas it is actually standing still and it is your attention that is moving. And I, th I think that that's what we're doing. Yes, I think, I think you're uh, right. yes. I think you're right. His, his very last point is we have become accustomed to count as really existing only that which is measurable in terms of length, breadth and height. But as has been shown, it is necessary to expand the limits of really existing. Dun, 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 dun. Yes, it has. Well, I, I'll take that I mean, as a given. He's shown that. can go back a little bit in the book to this, this Linga Sharira again. He says, uh, but something remains one under all changes. This something is the Linga Sharira. I know he said, as we discussed earlier on, that this is both changing and constant. But perhaps the, uh, this is this is why he's put Linga Sharira in there in the first place, is again to bring it through and say, we do know something that is constant. And the thing that is constant is is really consciousness, isn't it? It's 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 our awareness. This goes back to the very beginning. The, the very first thing he says, we are aware of consciousness. We are aware of the world, and the world has all the changing things in it. Sorry? I don't think consciousness yeah. is constant. We, we are changing our consciousness. That's the whole point. But the fact that we have consciousness. We have consciousness constant. is constant. But That but, is the thing. Uh, yes. Our, what, what comes in and out seems to change. But, you know, there are, at the very beginning, that's the very first thing he says, what, do we, what are our knowns and what are our unknowns? And uh, our known is the world around us and consciousness. So I don't know whether that can link through. I may be making too big a leap, but you know, is this Linga Sharira he's talking about again? Is that is that how he's linking it together? I'm not exactly sure. To me, this book, this chapter has two different, totally separate, not not related parts: the Linga Sharira part and the part about geometry. The the two to me do not match. I do not see the. I do not see. The relevance between the piece of paper analogy and the Linga Sharira conversation. Yeah, you're probably right, but he does he does say at the end, uh, well, not at the end of the um, chapter, but near the end of the chapter, as a conclusion. It's nice of him to give us one. As a conclusion from all of the above, we may repeat that every point of our space is the section of a line in higher space, or as. B. Riemann expressed it, the material atom is the entrance of the fourth dimension into three-dimensional space. Yes. We have to get down to the level of the atom before we start looking at the, the fourth dimension. What's meant by that, I have no idea. You'd probably best to explain that to me. I don't think he actually knows what that means either um, because, well, because he mentions it many times through his book. Well, when I say many, maybe two or three, but never expands on it. It's always this one throwaway line. The atom is the intersection of fourth-dimensional space with three-dimensional. Well, what does that really mean? Does he does he mean that what we see is the atom, the nucleus, and the electrons floating around it? Uh, I have an idea. Ah, uh, go ahead. What do you think? Okay, going back to ye ancient days. There are a group of philosophers on the Ionian coast, and this is pre-Athens, um, Greece, the, the Greece, the ancient Greece that everybody's aware of. But before that, these clever um, philosophers called the atomists, Parmenides was one, for example, and they were trying to prove that there is no such thing as an atom. They're, they were saying that existence, if there is such a thing, consists of a single field, an unbroken field that everything is connected. Does this sound very modern? It is very modern. And what we're finding with um, 
deeper research into quantum mechanics now is that there is no such thing as an atom, that first of all, there are no particles. We're talking about um, constant interactions of different um, vibrations of energy. Uh, we are calling these concentrations of energy. Um, we're giving them names to make it easier to explain and work with them. But we're, but the, the, the mathematicians, rather than the empirical observers, are, are way, well, the mathematicians are way ahead of the empiricists in this. They're building these big CERN uh, particle accelerators and they're doing their experiments. Well, the mathematicians are, they're only doing that in react, in, as a reaction to what the mathematicians are coming up with and they're trying to prove or disprove um, what, what mathematics is suggesting is that there are no particles, there are no objects. We are one continuous field of energy with different concentrations of vibration, which takes us. Could a that be back. consciousness, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, it could. Well, well, consciousness does does exist within this field. If if I could go back in the chapter, I just found this little section. I'm just going to read this out, if I may, Ali. It yeah, says, yeah. Um, "In this world, there is nothing constant." He says. So I'm just going to light that up. All is variable because every consecutive moment, uh, the thing is already not that which it was before. We never see the linga sharira. We see only its parts and they appear to us variable. But if we observe more attentively, we shall see that it is an illusion. Things of three dimension are unreal and variable. They cannot be real because they do not exist in reality, just as the imaginary sections of a solid do not exist. Fourth-dimensional yeah. bodies alone are real, and that and so I, was written that's long this, before we had the mathematics. To the mathematics is catching up with what people who were doing this kind of study, um, Helena Blavatsky, the people from the Golden Dawn schools, and remember that's got they've both got a lineage that goes back thousands upon thousands of years. Have already been stating this. Now we're getting validation from mathematics that this was always the case it's a really interesting point and nothing can be constant because even in higher dimensions we're talking about vibration if, if something's vibrating it cannot be constant it is never the same from one uh, peak to one trough of the wave of vibration i think that's his summary three pages yeah, before he says in conclusion do, do you want to yeah. say that again because it was um a little bit broken up with you moving to to get the Sorry. light working That's... again. Okay. In this world, there is nothing constant. All is variable because every consecutive moment, the thing is already not that which it was before. We never see the linga sharira. We see always its parts and they appear to us variable. But if we observe more attentively, we shall see that this is an illusion. Things of three dimensions are unreal and variable. They cannot be real because they do not exist in reality, just as the imaginary sections of a solid do not exist. Four-dimensional four dimensional bodies alone are real. Uh, as I said, I think that is his summary for the chapter, which is in the middle of the chapter. But um, he says, look for the constant, and the constant is not in our in our three dimensions. And he does go, in, in next chapters, he does expand on that a bit more too, when he talks about the different analogies of solids and... And I think that's a fabulous concept. And I think it sort of puts to rest a lot of our trying to explain things that seem to come in a sequence that doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, we try to make sense out of our lives, etc., etc., and there are things that we say, this happened because of that or something else, which he again has discussed in earlier chapters. But I, I think it's just... Well, his, his point is... We are seeing a part, we are not seeing the whole. And if we were to see the whole, it's from a, a, a higher viewpoint. And that is where you can see 1812 and 1912 at the same time. That's where you can see your whole piece of paper. So, And it's interesting, though, that we can only see 1812 from the third dimension and like eight, and, and 1914 or whatever year you want to say. Um, from a perspective of that being in what we perceive to be the past. What we can't seem to put together by folding the paper from here is 2032. Oh, can yes. we? No, we can't, well. can we? Well, not from our perspective. We, we believe that we understand the events of 
1812. We believe that we understand the events of 1918 because we, th we believe that we're pulling back memories of facts. If we are looking at 2032, we are, we are projecting, or we, we appear to be projecting, a potential reality that we don't know. So, look, I think his concepts, his main concepts can become reasonably simple, even though they're, 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 they're different and they're new. But I agree with you, Pete and Alison, I think he's just thrown in part concepts, partly developed thoughts to see if that will help you understand it a bit more and this might help you understand a bit more. I think it just puts some confusion in there. It does for me. Where well, he's building me. a scaffold. He's building, he's a, building scaffold. a scaffold. It's and, like and all will be revealed. Yes. So watch this, watch this space, <laughs> so as to speak. <laughs> so chapter six, more will be revealed. Thank you, guys. That's been a very enlightening conversation. I've, I think I've got a little bit more out of the chapter yet again just by talking through different yeah, things. Yeah, me too. Yes, I agree. That was a short chapter, wasn't it? Oh, it was a short chapter, but still we spent the hour. We still spent the hour. I'm joking. Yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> so thanks, guys, and I'll see you for Chapter 6 when we meet again. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And thanks again, everyone, for listening, and we look forward to your company for the discussion on Chapter 6.